0: I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. By nature, we are pleasure seekers. We pursue activities and substances that make us feel good. So what goes on inside the brain? And how does a behavior turn into an addiction?
1: So we all have a baseline level of dopamine firing in the brain. That means it's constantly being released. And what happens when we do something that's reinforcing and potentially addictive is that it releases more dopamine temporarily in that reward pathway, and that gives us that hit of pleasure, that little high. With an addictive drug, what you get is a whole lot of dopamine released all at once.
0: And later, healthy sources of dopamine and practical ways of keeping our pleasure-seeking in check.
1: We're often very afraid to reveal to others our mistakes because we're afraid that people will go running when they find out how we're not perfect. But in fact, the opposite happens. People see their own shared brokenness and they feel closer to us.
0: Addiction specialist Anna Lemke on finding balance in an age of overconsumption. That's coming up on Life Examined. When was the last time you took a break from your phone? Can you disconnect for a day or two without feeling anxious? Whether it's coffee, video games, or cannabis, we live in a society where so many behaviors and substances have become readily accessible and increasingly addictive. So when does a behavior become an addiction, and what drives that craving? The secret lies in the brain, with the neurotransmitter dopamine, a chemical pathway that makes us feel good. The higher the levels of dopamine produced in our brains, the more pleasure, and the more likely we are, to continue or repeat using that substance or behavior that caused the feeling. In her book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, author Anna Lemke describes how our relentless pursuit of pleasure has led to even greater pain, and offers advice on how to keep our addictions in check— Lemke is Director of Addiction Medicine at Stanford University and Chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic, and she joins us now. Anna Lemke, welcome to the full hour of Life Examines. We appreciate you having you.
1: Oh my goodness. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: This is such a, a fascinating topic and one that, that is, is very near and dear to me as somebody who studied psychology. and um, but, but to get to know you a little bit better, what made you particularly interested in this question of pleasure and dopamine?
1: I was seeing more and more patients coming into my practice uh, as a psychiatrist, who seemed to have all of the good things uh, that we associate with life. They had loving families, uh, interesting work, uh, relative wealth, uh, access to uh, all kinds of um, things that we associate with, uh, you know, a good life. And yet they were extremely unhappy. And you know, 20 years ago, my reflex my reflexive response to that kind of clinical presentation would be, would be to uh, say there's a chemical imbalance in the brain. Mm-hmm. De- it says major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder, and I'd prescribe a pill or recommend some type of psychotherapy or both. Um, but uh, in treating patients with addiction over many years, I became fascinated by the ways in which my patients who got into recovery from their addiction. Also, had spontaneous resolution of many of these co occurring symptoms of depression, anxiety, insomnia, irritability, lack of attention you name it. Hmm. And I wondered if, on some level, maybe we all were struggling with some form of addiction or compulsive overconsumption that was, in effect, changing our brains the same way that. Uh, the brains of people who use heroin, cocaine, cannabis, alcohol, and addictive ways are being changed, and that maybe what the what the intervention really is it is not you know a pill to make people uh, feel better, but rather um, abstaining from these highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors in order to reset reward pathways. Mm.
0: What's so interesting to me about the way that you've you've just explained that so beautifully is that. I think the, the, the old school model of addiction works in the opposite way. Somebody comes in with major depressive disorder or an anxiety disorder, or, or you trace it back to those disorders and say, that's why there's an addiction, to cover that up, to soothe the depression or the anxiety. But when you're saying that people are walking in with what's supposed to make us happy, stable homes, uh, some level of wealth, social connection, that kind of flips the argument on its head, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, exactly. And what you're alluding to is the self-medication hypothesis, which was originally conceptualized by Sander Rado, who was a psychoanalyst, and was an acolyte of Freud, who basically <clears throat> answered the question that's been posed for millennia which is why is it that some people can use addictive substances like alcohol in moderation and others cannot. Right. And his answer to that question was uh, oh people who become addicted are self-medicating an underlying psychiatric disorder. Now on the face of that 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 feels right and it sounds right and it's, it's kind of intuitively satisfying. The problem is that it's not entirely correct. And we know that because, for example, if you take somebody who has a mental illness and also addiction, and you manage to effectively uh, treat their mental illness, they're still addicted. Uh, So that tells us that really what we have here is two related pathways. I'll never forget the patient of mine who was addicted to alcohol and also came to see me for severe depression. And I managed, in that instance, this was some 20 years ago, the medication that I gave him uh, to treat his depression actually worked. Oftentimes when we use medication in the context of addiction, they don't work because the addictive substance or behavior overwhelms the effect of the drug. Mm. But he got better from his depression and came to see me and said, you know, I realized for the first time that I'm an alcoholic because I always thought I was drinking because I was depressed, but now I'm no longer depressed and I'm still drinking. And it's been really, it's really challenging to sort of um, challenge the self-medication hypothesis because we want to make sense of irrational behavior, so right. patients will come in and say, "Oh, I drink because of X, y, and Z." and what I say to them is, "Well, really, maybe um, you know you're experiencing X, y and Z because you drink
0: mm. so this to me opens up big questions of why is it just as you say, some become um, addicted to substances and some don't. And to me, and this is something, you know, we would study in school and in clinical psychology is a question of, well, could it be genetics? Is there a hereditary component? I mean, we hear this idea that alcoholism could be passed down through generations. What do we know about that now? Is that is that something that's still considered to be valid?
1: Very valid. So about 50 to 60% of the risk of becoming addicted is inherited, meaning that we're born with it. It's in our genes. It's a complex polygenic phenomenon. It's not like we're going to identify the addiction gene. But it's very clear that people come into this world with different levels of risk for becoming addicted, um, and that some people have much more risk of that than others. If you have a biological parent or grandparent, for example, who um, was addicted to alcohol, you are at increased risk of becoming addicted to alcohol yourself compared to the general population, even if raised outside of that alcoholic home. So that's really important because we do know that modeling substance use is itself a risk Right. You know, the way that we're raised, nurture is important, but it turns out even if you're not uh, exposed to that, those kinds of maladaptive coping skills, but you have been adopted out, but you have a biological parent or grandparent with addiction, you, you are at increased risk uh, to get addicted yourself. So really important to recognize um, you know that people come in come into this world with different levels of risk and that some people, have uh, you know a, a, a really uh, sen- a real strong sensitivity to addiction? Again, it's complex. It's polygenic. It has to do with a combination between of being able to delay gratification, impulsivity. Um, emotion dysregulation, you know, it's a lot of different factors.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the idea that someone, let's say, could be adopted, and, but but have this propensity for addiction, even though there could be a linked grandparent. Because I, I was just wondering, I mean, how do we separate the distinction between genetics if we don't know what the specific gene is versus environment? To me, that becomes a very complicated question.
1: Right, And the way that you do that w- is with family studies and adoption studies and right. twin studies that those are the that's the standard way to kind of separate nature from nurture. Um, and I think the, the to me, the evidence is is con- compelling and convincing that there's a strong nature component, you know, and and that if you look at all mental illnesses, the genetic risk of addiction is higher than, you know, the genetic risk is higher in addiction than it is for almost any other mental illness, including mental illnesses like schizophrenia that we typically think of as very biological. Mm. In other words, you know, addiction is a profoundly biological phenomenon. On the other hand, 50% is just 50%. So that means there's 50% that's not based on you know, the genes you inherited and instead is based on the way that you're raised, the, the world that you live in. One of the major points that I, you know, that I try to make is that we're living in an, in an addictogenic world mm. in which almost all substances and human behaviors, even behaviors that we typically think of as healthy and adaptive, like reading, uh, right, have become addicted, have become drugified in some way, made more potent, more accessible, uh, the internet has absolutely exploded this phenomenon now with the touch of a finger. We have access to all kinds of reinforcing drugs and behaviors, including drugs that didn't exist before, like social media, which is drugified human connection, uh, video games, which is dr- drugified uh, the, the challenge of overcoming a problem in a game setting, uh, pornography, which has been around since the beginning of time, mm-hmm. but is now much more graphic, much more potent, much more accessible because of the internet.
0: Yeah, I want to get to all of this. This is really important. But let's, I think, take one step back because I want to just understand the essence of, of addiction. And I mean, for example, you use the term dopamination. That's the title of your book. So maybe talk a little bit about what dopamine is and how it functions in the brain.
1: Dopamine is a neurotransmitter, so it's a molecule that we make in our brains, and it's fundamental to the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. It's not the only chemical neurotransmitter involved in that process, but it's probably the final common pathway for all reinforcing drugs and behaviors. So whether your drug is pornography or gambling or cannabis or alcohol, at the end of the day, what all of those substances and behaviors do is release a whole lot of dopamine in this very particular circuit in the brain uh, that's been identified as the reward pathway.
0: When does that become something that, you know, we rely on day to day into a full-blown addiction? I mean, talk about the kind of the neurochemistry here.
1: So we all have a baseline level of dopamine firing in the brain. That means it's constantly being released in the brain in our reward pathway at a a kind of a baseline um, level. And what happens when we do something that's reinforcing and potentially addictive is that it releases more dopamine temporarily in that reward pathway. And that gives us that that hit of pleasure, that little high. Uh, But what happens is that the brain immediately adapts to that increased dopamine by downregulating dopamine transmission and dopamine production mm. and with a very with an addictive drug what you get is a whole lot of dopamine released all at once so a huge upward spike in dopamine really much more than our brains have evolved uh, to adapt to. And so in order to compensate for that huge increase in dopamine, what the brain does is down dopamine production and transmission, not just to that tonic baseline level, but actually below baseline to a dopamine deficit state. And that's the state of craving. Uh, that's the state of profound physiologic uh, wanting. It's a state of withdrawal, the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance or anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, intrusive thoughts of wanting to use so if when we are in our our, if when we are in that state we have immediate access to our drug of choice we will naturally reach for it again in order to bring ourselves just even back up to baseline or what neuroscientists call homeostasis if we if we don't have access uh, then you know we we wait and eventually our our body gets the memo it needs it can start upregulating dopamine again and it goes back to baseline Um, But the problem with addiction is that with repeated exposure to the same or similar reinforcing drug, that initial dopamine spike gets weaker and shorter in duration, but that after effect or that dopamine deficit state gets stronger and longer, and eventually we get into a chronic dopamine deficit state, and that's essentially addiction. Once we get into that state, now we need to use our drug of choice not to get high, but just to bring dopamine levels back up to baseline normal levels of firing. And when we're not using, we're walking around in this state of withdrawal experiencing those universal symptoms of withdrawal, including craving.
0: Mm. And I'm sure you know alcoholism seems to run in most families or so many of us have been exposed to it, but it's that classic example of somebody having to wake up to drink, just just not feel drunk, but just to feel normal, for example, right? Or to have the cigarette in the morning to just feel balanced out. Is that right? That's
1: right, That's right. So what happens is you get into this kind of desperate vortex or loop of addiction? where you're feeling intense anxiety or irritability, um, depression, and you you know that you smoking a cigarette or taking a drink or playing a video game will get you out of it temporarily, and that, that's where this whole idea of self-medication comes in. It feels like, oh, that's helping me. But in effect, what you're actually doing is uh, changing your baseline set point for experiencing pleasure and pain, going deeper into this dopamine deficit state as the brain tries to compensate for the fire hose of dopamine it's getting from these external uh, substances and mm. signals. And then ultimately, uh, you know, you're know, you just essentially chasing your tail. No matter how much you use, it's just driving you deeper into depression and anxiety and, and other psychiatric forms of, uh, of despair and discomfort.
0: Mm. And it strikes me as, as interesting... And and, I don't know, maybe even metaphoric, just that the body is always seeking to equalize. It's looking, it's just trying to get back to a place of balance, which for some, once this pattern begins, seems to be almost impossible.
1: Yeah. So, you know, one of the major rules governing all living organisms is the drive toward homeostasis or basically whatever your baseline is. Um, So if you're, and the definition of stress is any deviation from baseline, whether it's an upward deviation to feeling better or a downward deviation to feeling worse, the body wants to go back to that baseline. And our brains will work very hard to restore homeostasis with any deviation from neutrality, which is why it's really important to recognize that addiction changes the brain. You know, exposure to these substances changes our brain. It changes our hedonic or joy set point, mm. and it can lead to addiction, even independent of those other risk factors. So you can have the perfect life, the perfect job, uh, the perfect spouse, and with enough exposure to a drug, you can change your brain, change your hedonic set point, get into that dopamine, dopamine deficit state, and then be entirely driven by the drive uh, uh, you know, to reassert a homeostasis that feels like self-medication, but is actually just kind of chasing your own tail. Mm-hmm.
0: This reminds me of a very famous study, and I I can't remember if it's Rat City, but it has to do with... with It's Rat Park. It's Rat Park. Park. And I'm sure you've used this a lot before teaching, but for our listeners that don't know about it, maybe you can talk about that, because it seems to highlight your point almost exactly.
1: So this is the work of Bruce Alexander, who basically said, uh, you know, hey, these studies where you're putting a rat in a cage and, and there's a lever for pressing cocaine, and you see that the rat presses cocaine until exhaustion or until it dies... Um, aren't really um, the best model for studying addiction because you're not giving the rat any alternative behaviors. And if the rat had other alternative behaviors, like, for example, an interesting or complex maze or some, some sawdust to explore or other rats... Or a running wheel, for example, then that rat—in other words, healthier sources of dopamine, presumably, right? Then that rat would uh, would not press the lever as much for, coca- for cocaine. And so he did this experiment that's been now really become iconic, called the Rat Park, rat Park experiment, in which he puts rats, you know, in uh, in an expansive cage with all kinds of amusing. And rewarding things to do and there's a lever for cocaine and he essentially found that they pressed the lever less often if they had other uh, sources of reward and of course analogized to humans living in the world you know that that makes a lot of sense right if we have access to healthy sources of dopamine like exercise and fresh air and uh you know good social connections we're much less likely to get addicted to to drugs and other other, uh, you know, addictive reinforcers, and and we all feel that that's intuitively true, and it turns out it, it is true. The problem is that now that rat park has essentially become rat amusement park. Yes, yes. Um, where uh, you know, the, even things that are healthy and adaptive uh, that we think of as healthy and adaptive, like exercise have become drugified. How have they become drugified? Well, now you have, you know, ranking systems and social media. And uh, so people aren't just, you know, doing their sport, they're competing against other people on social media, and they're getting the applause. And now they have all these machines that they use to, um, you know, extend the limits of the human body and uh, all kinds of things that all of a sudden, you know, humans are doing things that really, you know, from an exercise perspective, we weren't really meant to do. You know, jumping out of airplanes, right. all these kinds of things. Uh, also, very fascinating. and I write about this in the book. Is that even among rats, we used to think of running wheels as a as a measure, just simply of of uh, movement or locomotion, um, but it turns out running wheels are addictive for rats. Mm-hmm. That, that those uh, actual, they're actual, in and of themselves, a form of technology, and that some rats will run on those wheels till they're till they die or till exhaustion. And um, if you make the running wheel smaller, then they'll run until their little tails are sort of curved in a very small shape of the running wheel. Mm. If you put a running wheel in nature, you will have all kinds of animals engaging in the running wheel, even without a food reward to incentivize them. So there's something inherently reinforcing about moving around in three-dimensional space, like a Ferris wheel, which is reinforcing for humans uh, an amusement park some humans anyway Um, you know so the, the point is that this idea of of like oh well if we just had these healthier societies yes that that's true I think we can all agree but what does a healthy society look like and and are we living in that now? And I think, you know, to me the answer is clear that we're not. It's mm-hmm. this overwhelming overabundance and the drugification of everyday life that has led us all uh, to become, in some form, addicted.
0: What you said about um, athletics and the body is is striking me very personally, and I, I've talked about this on the show. I'm I've been in the process of training for half Ironmans, full Ironmans, and mm. um, and. You know, it's so interesting. So the volume of training is so outrageously and probably ridiculously high that... The week before a race, anybody who does uh, endurance will know there's something called a taper period where you have to do less activity. And there's something then called a taper blues where you actually mm. kind of fall mm-hmm. into this almost mild depression for about right. a week. Yeah, and I, sure. I just had mine last week.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay.
0: I'm okay. I, I promise I You everyone. knew it was coming. Yes, knew I knew it was coming. It was, but it, it's true. I, for about a week... I just felt purposeless. I felt sluggish. I felt bored. I didn't yeah. feel like myself, mm. and this is all because my body is on some level addicted now to a certain level of right. physical movement, which I think has changed uh, what I expect from these, you know, from the dopamine neurotransmitter. I mean, you could explain that more than me, but I, I, it's just so interesting how you pinpointed that, which is something that I feel, and and just personally, it does raise some really large questions as is this activity actually healthy for me? Mm, mm -hmm. I think it's better than maybe, you know, becoming an alcoholic or being addicted. Mm. But, you know, this is this interesting gray area that I think a lot of us deal with.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly, right? I mean, the way that we have taken something that's really healthy and adaptive, like uh, you know like moving our bodies we all know there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that exercise is uh, beneficial to physical and mental health and yet what what have we done with it we've mm-hmm. now you know enabled ourselves to push ourselves to such extreme limits that you know i think we do need to start to ask the question like is this still healthy you know is this still something that and 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 i see this in you know youth sports uh, just really it's it's really scary the extent to which now um you know something that's basically i think still a good thing and i believe in it my kids are all in youth sports and have benefited mostly from it but again, it's it's the, the, the social media aspect, the way that they're now ranking. They they look, you know, you, now you're comparing yourself not just to like your high school teammates, but like you're looking at people's numbers all over the country. Um, you know, pushing themselves more and more. I mean, it, it can get just as bad as you know, like an eating disorder or something. Yeah.
0: No, I mean, that's, that's really powerful stuff. and And I think, you know, outside of what we thought of were these healthy behaviors or these healthy aspects of the environment, I just think about what it's like to be a human to wake up. I mean... For a lot of folks, you get up, me included, and we have outrageous caffeine consumptions, right. which is what I think some people are questioning. Uh, we're on our phones for I don't know how many hours, but I mean, if we just walk through a day of a human, I mean, these you could maybe explain this more to me, but it seems like it's kind of nonstop addictive behaviors, right,
1: right, 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 and that and that's essentially the problem that you know we we have we have created a world now in which. Um, you know, from the moment we make, wake up and grab our smartphone and get our coffee and, you know, eat our uh, high salt, fat, sugar food, uh, and, you know, or even if we're healthy, you know, then we do our pound our run or whatever, take our ice cold water. I mean, it, it's not to say that, 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 you know, we should stop the healthy behaviors um, like exercise, but, but it's, it's to just really take a moment and reflect on the, the extent to which we use these substances and behaviors to modify the way that we feel. Mm. Um, as opposed to learning to just kind of sit with those emotions and tolerate them and watch them pass over us and not try to con- control every aspect of, of, of our you know emotional state. A huge part of addiction is this, this control piece. And the way in which um, you know people use substances and behaviors uh, to to modify their psychological experience in the moment, and, and how reinforcing that can be, um, and sometimes it can even not not be not it can be a behavior that doesn't make them feel good, but the fact that they control it and it's reliably gives them a certain type of feeling. Uh, that that's very reinforcing
0: reminds me of a client i once had who who i think ultimately was quite addicted to cannabis but had to use it in order just to be social to leave the right, house right it was it was his way of just feeling of control over his emotional or psychological states i'm sure you've seen this a lot with your own patients that have come in
1: yeah and so the key intervention there is to make folks recognize okay i see that this is actually a tool that has worked for you, which is why you continue to use it. But because of the way that the brain adapts to these kinds of reinforcing substances and behaviors, eventually the tool turns on us. And not only does it stop working, but then it very often can cause the very problem we were trying to avoid. And I see that all the time with cannabis, people who start using it to manage anxiety and then ultimately become you know, very, very anxious um even you know suspicious paranoid psychotic uh, because of the cannabis and so my job is to really redirect people to looking at cause and effect in a new way and the way that we do that very often is by a dopamine fast or an abstinence trial where i say you know you have this sense that the cannabis is making anxious a hypothesis let's have you stop for a month because mm-hmm. a month is about the average amount of time it takes to reset reward pathways Let's have you stop and then see how you feel after a month. And, of course, doing that, we know that patients will feel worse before they feel better right. because as soon as they stop using, they'll, you know, they'll plummet into that dopamine deficit state. They'll experience withdrawal. And the universal symptom of withdrawal is anxiety. Um, but if they can just wait long enough and allow the brain to get the memo that it needs to start upregulating its own dopamine and other feel-good neurotransmitters, I very often, and I would say the majority of the time, patients will come back after that kind of dopamine fast and say, wow, I'm less anxious than I have been in many years. And what I thought was helping alleviate anxiety, I now see was actually creating my anxiety.
0: Mm. I I love that idea of a dopamine fast. Is that something that you can say more about, or or is it something that you think could be applied, I don't know, to even our phones or, or social media, whatever it is?
1: Yeah, I mean, the dopamine fast is essentially a great way to see true cause and effect. Because when we're chasing dopamine, we, we can't see it. We don't see the harms that our behaviors and mm. our, our, our ingestion cause us. It's just, we, we just lose the ability to, to see that. Um, but if we stop using for a period of time, number one, what it does is it allows uh, the brain to readapt to the absence of that drug, and essentially, what happens is the brain starts to upregulate its own dopamine production because it's not getting it from this outside source, and eventually, we come out of that state of dopamine chasing, and we're back to homeostasis, and uh, you know, people experience uh, um, you know large reduction, if not cessation, in those universal symptoms of withdrawal, uh, which are anxiety, irritability, depression, insomnia and a craving. So it's, it's really a great experiment to do even if you're not addicted because it can really open your eyes to maybe having become a little bit addicted. So one of the things that I say to people who maybe don't have any personal experience with addiction is try putting your phone away for 24 hours yeah. that means no screens no touching it for any reason at all and then observe in yourself what goes on in your mind uh, the feelings of anxiety even sheer terror that my, made a ro- my arise for you and know that that is what somebody who's in withdrawal from addictive drugs and alcohol and other addictive behaviors experiences in withdrawal because the same thing is happening we're getting little dopamine hits every time. Uh, we touch our phone or even get an alert uh, that we should be touching our phone because it's the triggers for drug use that also get us a little bit high, not just the drug use itself. And, uh, you know, and going through that withdrawal is just really, I think, very instructive because it's very clear that we are struggling as a world uh, with compulsive overconsumption of these uh, devices and the digital content, and that we're not living in a healthy relationship for the most part with this very wonderful technology that also unfortunately has a dark side.
0: We'll be back with Anna Lemke, author of A Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, after this short break. You're listening to Life Examined on KCRW. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car. Designed to be recycled. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard addiction specialist Anna Lemke talk about how dopamine works in the brain, and how just by abstaining from certain behaviors, it's possible to re-regulate our dopamine production and keep our cravings under control. We rejoin the conversation as I recount a recent experience in which even supposedly healthy things like exercise can become an addiction. So we've done some interesting shows on this idea of gamification of mm. everyday life, which I think is so important. And just another quick an- anecdote. I mean, I just having competed in, in a race recently, all I wanted to do was grab my phone and see where I finished and see how I ranked yeah, in my age group. Of and, and I had the best time of my life by 30 minutes and then I saw that 700 people beat me and I felt I felt bad I was like what was the point of me even doing this which is to say what has happened to me or so many of us that we can no longer dishonor the activity or the achievement but have to immediately go into a point of comparison and it's just that's and you're right. It's a craving. Like I literally sat with that question and wonders what what is it about us psychologically that that's yeah. where we go. And it's yeah. it's to me it's 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 really difficult. It's a hard part part of who we are. I think.
1: Well, you know, I think it's always important to look at what is the adaptive piece behind that. So it's actually very adaptive and entirely human to want to know where you fit into the larger social structure. Mm. And knowing your, where you are in that larger social structure is important and advantageous. So we're wired to tune into that, to know what it is, and to make certain behavioral decisions and judgments based on that. Unfortunately, now everything has you know become ranked in this way. Uh, so, and of course, we're comparing ourselves not to our little tribe, which is how we were evolved, right. but to the whole freaking world. Mm. And so there's going to be not just a couple people, you know, ahead of us or better than we are. There are going to be millions of people. So inevitably we're left with the sense of, you know, feeling like losing that sense of accomplishment or feeling less than. I know when my uh, book first came out, it was for a while, like number one on Amazon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so for when I first thought, I was was like, oh, wow, that's so great. And then of course, you know, a week into it, I was checking it every five minutes. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, this is driving me crazy. But you know, to get myself, but because I have, you know, this level of awareness through years of training and doing this work and writing a book about it, frankly, you know, I I knew I just had to stop checking and I did. And, And my, you know, sense of peace and serenity, kind of returned to the extent that I have peace and serenity in my life. <laughs> sure. Uh, but you know, at least it was back to kind of a tolerable baseline. But I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenging
0: world. So as someone now who you know, has, has raised children, who has been so involved in this, um, who has seen patients for all these years, I, I wonder if there's any other uh, tips or interventions that you would offer us that you might talk about in the book or, or things that we need to think about
1: One of the things I've learned from patients in recovery from severe addiction is the importance of Mm. truth-telling. My patients who get into robust recovery can't lie not just about their substance use. They can't lie about anything. They can't lie about what they had for breakfast or why they're five minutes late for a meeting because they know as soon as they start lying, they're very vulnerable to relapse. And I found that really fascinating. Um, you know, on what level is that working? And I think, you know, th- what the research shows and what my experience and my own research shows is that it's working on a bunch of different really interesting levels. But the bottom line is that um, I do, I have come to believe that radical truth telling or trying to tell the truth about everything is a, a path to um, not just being able to cons- co- to curb our compulsive overconsumption, but it's a path to uh, peace and serenity um, and, and I think the way that it works is, number one, it, it helps promote intimacy. Hmm. So we're, we're often very afraid to reveal to others our mistakes, our, our acts of selfishness, and the way we've harmed others, because we're afraid that people will go running when they find out you know, right. uh, how we're not perfect. But in fact, the opposite happens, that instead when we honestly reveal ourselves in this way, people see their own shared brokenness and they feel closer to us. And that intimacy is a wonderful and healthy source of dopamine. We know, for example, that oxytocin, the love hormone, binds to dopamine releasing neurons in the reward pathway and releases dopamine. So when we have that kind of burst of intimacy, I think that's a very powerful and profound moment and a wonderful antidote to addiction. So, so telling the truth works on that level. Telling the truth is also really important for guiding future decisions. Mm. One of the things that really struck me about midway through my psychiatric career, because I listen all day to people's stories, uh, is the way that they tell their stories matters and that there are healing narratives and then there are narratives that are contrary to healing. And I have found that when people tell their autobiographical narratives, in a way that adhere most closely to the real events, i.e. the truthful narrative, they're much more likely to get into recovery and stay in in recovery. Uh, But when they tell a story that's sort of like slightly in a fantasy land, (laughs) which often takes the form of, oh, it's always everybody else's fault uh, why I I do these things that I do, they're not going to get into recovery and they're not going to stay in recovery. And I think the reason for that is... That the way that we tell our stories is not just a way to understand and frame past experience. It also becomes a roadmap for the future. Uh, It allows us to have signposts to make uh, decisions going forward. So if we're not telling true stories, we don't really have access to the data that we need to make good decisions. So one of the things that I've really changed in in my life is I try to go through every day and and not lie. And it turns out it's really hard. The average adult tells one to two lies per day. These are usually small lies, like, oh, sorry, I'm late for the meeting. Traffic was bad. That's not true. I'm late for the meeting because I took an extra 10 minutes to drink my coffee and read the paper. Um, So I think that I really prescribe radical truth-telling to my patients. It's something I learn from my patients, and I try to practice it in my own life, and I recommend it to others.
0: Mm. And it just makes me think of the... In, in the worlds of healing or counseling, th- th- why um, support groups are just so effective still? Getting people that can speak honestly and truthfully about where they are, why they've come to this point, is something we still rely on over and over.
1: Absolutely, so mutual help groups like 12 Steps, Alcoholics Anonymous, and others, um, they're, they're very de-shaming because we realize we're not alone in the things that we've done that we regret or are ashamed of. They also work as a kind of extended hippocampus. Hmm. Um, so we, we, unfortunately, you know, don't have a lot of access to uh, all of our behaviors, right? We don't see them clearly for what they are. We don't see cr- to, true cause and effect. But being in a group can act, serve as a, a kind of extended memory. Or a reminder, for example, when newcomers come in and talk about uh, you know, their active drug and alcohol use, then people who have been in recovery for some time are reminded, oh, yeah, I remember how that was. I don't want to go back to that.
0: So another major area of expertise that you've looked at for years is the opioid epidemic um, about, you know, not just the cultural phenomenon, but also how these drugs work. So in this greater conversation about uh, dopamine, pleasure, and pain, tell us a little bit about what you've been looking at and how it, it works its way into this conversation we've been having.
1: My work with chronic pain patients on opioids was one of the Major instigators for nation. What I was seeing was patients who had been put on opioids to treat their chronic pain, who had taken those opioids diligently over days to weeks to months to years, and ended up in a place where their pain was worse. Hmm. And this is a, you know, a, a, a now well-respected phenomenon called opioid-induced hyperalgesia, whereby the opioid itself actually increases the pain over time very paradoxical here we're giving patients a medication to help with their pain which actually worsens their pain if they take it um, especially at high doses over long periods of time and this makes a lot of sense that this would happen from from the perspective of neuroadaptation and what's going on in the brain you know with the pleasure pain balance and the ways in which our brains will adapt uh, to a molecule like an opioid and eventually drive down um, our pain thresholds such that now we're experiencing even more pain than we were prior to taking the drug.
0: So on top of just opioids, I mean, what we're hearing now is is the added epidemic of, of fentanyl. And I, I wonder what your experience is seeing that drug, the impacts it has on people, because this is probably uh, that which is getting the most attention in the media of, of overdoses, high, crazy rates of addiction. What have you seen?
1: So fentanyl is a synthetically manufactured opioid, which is to say it can be made pretty cheaply in a laboratory without any plant precursor. So no opium poppy required. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a medicinal opioid. So it's made by uh, the pharmaceutical industry. It's used by doctors. Uh, to treat uh, pain, um, and it's a very very important tool. It's fifty to a hundred times more potent than morphine. The problem now is that we have illicit laboratories manufacturing fentanyl very cheaply, um, both in the United States, but primarily overseas in places like China, and that fentanyl has now infiltrated the illicit drug market. Initially, it infiltrated uh, the drug market by by um, being mixed with heroin as a kind of cheaper alternative and also a more potent alternative. And the natural history of addiction is that over time, people look for more potent forms as they develop tolerance uh, to their drug of choice. So what happened when fentanyl first entered the U.S. market around 2010, 2011, is that uh, there was a spike in in, uh, opioid overdoses, in large part because stable heroin users uh, didn't know that fentanyl was in their product. But unfortunately, what we're seeing now is many people who are intentionally seeking out fentanyl because of its potency. And of course, along with that potency is an increased lethality. Um, it's much easier to overdose even on a very small um, amount of fentanyl. And many of our patients now, very sadly, uh, can very cheaply obtain fentanyl on the open uh, open dr- drug air market And so are really, um, you know, uh, it's kind of a Russian roulette. They're really, um, every time they use, uh, they're getting very close to the possibility of uh, dying from an accidental overdose. Hmm.
0: One of the most interesting, and and some would say uh, outspoken voices on this program, would be Carl Hart, a psychiatrist from Columbia University. He wrote, uh, I think, a a really influential book called uh, Drug Use for Grown-Ups. And his idea is that it's actually not the drugs that are the problem, Um, that in fact, if if people knew the drugs they were taking, the correct dosage, and that the drugs were clean, that even something like fentanyl uh, could be used safely. By the public. And rather, we need to look more at the environmental issues that could create addiction problems within a community. So um, some would see that as maybe the furthest position out there on the left uh, when it comes to uh, drug regulation. How do you feel about his position on this and, and whether or not you think it holds up?
1: I agree that the environment and the world that we live in uh, is a huge factor in terms of drug use. But where I disagree with Carl Hart is uh, his I would say, disregard for the inherently addictive potential of the drugs that people have access to now, as well as the ways in which simple access is a risk factor for addiction. We know that if you live in a neighborhood where drugs are sold on the street corner, you're more likely to use them and more likely to get addicted to them. If you go to a doctor who's free with their prescription pad, you're more likely to be exposed to addictive substances and and more likely to get addicted yourself um, this idea that you know that access and the drug itself um, play no role, I think, is an oversimplification um, because it, it underestimates the, the the inherent addictive nature and the ways that these drugs can hijack our brains, even when our lives are great, even when we have meaningful work and a good social network and a supportive spouse and kids we love, et cetera, et cetera. These drugs can take over and they can take over in a way that's really insidious that people themselves are not aware of. So, uh, I mean, I'll never forget I was uh, on this uh, harm reduction radio show years back talking to the host. Who originally got into recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous, He had an alcohol addiction, but eventually concluded that he didn't need Alcoholics Anonymous and that he uh, wanted to drink in moderation, and that he had been successful in drinking in moderation, um, you know, for the past decade. And I said, well, that's great. And I do believe that people, even people who have been diagnosed with addiction, some small percentage of them can, a return to using their drug of choice in moderation. But then I asked him, I said, well, what does moderation look like for you? He said, well, once a week I lock myself up in my house, I lock up my car keys, and I drink to oblivion. I mm. drink, you know, two, three pints of vodka. I drink till I pass out. Now, to me, that is not moderation. Mm-hmm. Um, but so so I think the, the devil's in the details here. You know, people who say they're using uh, any drug really in moderation— I would not just ask them uh, specifically what that looks like, but I would also ask the people around them and see if if their perception of their drug use is in fact uh, accurate
0: mm. and this is I think where the larger um, you know cultural context of the opioid epidemic was interesting because it seemed to not just impact one population or another. I mean, my take it is this was this was uh, something spread out across the socioeconomic world. I mean, I'm sure you saw people that, just as you say, had healthy lives and good relationships come in with addiction problems.
1: Yeah, I think that's really, you know, the key there that, um, you know, this idea that, that somehow— only the weak will get addicted right. when exposed to a drug is, is just so patently false. And, and the opioid epidemic is a great example of that. Um, you know, as I as I talk about in my book, I think, you know, if you're not addicted yet, you, you know, it's coming soon to a website near you. It's, it's a matter of drug of choice, but we've all got our thing hmm. that once, uh, you know, once we have access to that, very hard to manage our consumption. Digital products today are a great example of that. As I talk about in the book, I got addicted to romance novels, starting with The Twilight Saga. Mm. And then, you know, once I got a Kindle and I had easy access, it, it, you know, progressed to frank erotica over time. Now, I would have told you prior to that experience that I don't have the addiction gene um, because alcohol gives me a headache. Caffeine doesn't wake me up. In other words, I just thought I was sort of immune to that particular problem. Turns out I just hadn't yet met my drug of choice. Um, and, and when we need our drug of choice, trust me, we all have an addict in us.
0: Mm. Say more about that, that that there are so many ways in which we could be addicted that um, the addict is in us. It's waiting there. I mean, I think that's a, that's a pretty interesting argument.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's really the essence of dopamine nation that we're now living in a world in which everything has become drugified, uh, making us all more vulnerable uh, to the problem of addiction than previously. And that's borne out by the epidemiology, too. So for example, if you look at rates of alcohol addiction, they've gone up 80% in women and 50% in older people in the last 50 years. Those are demographic groups that we thought were relatively immune, which is to say we thought, oh, well, you know, men, the ratio of uh, men to women for alcohol use disorder has been five to one, two to one for, you know, the beginning of time ever since we've been, been looking at this sort of thing. If you look at millennials, that's no longer true. It's one to one. What's the difference? Well, there are cultural differences around um, you know, what we consider to be normative drinking for women. But the big difference is access. You know, now you have the very potent forms of alcohol in many different forms uh, every everywhere you go. And the same is true for every single other drug you can think of, and includes things that we don't think of as drugs. So for example, I've got people Um, coming to me for online chess addiction. Uh, Mm -hmm. Chess is not something that, you know, we traditionally associate with the idea of addiction, but now you've got these short games. They're everywhere. They're augmented by social media. People uh, since the pandemic, you know, got hooked on chess, thought it was sort of a benign activity, intellectual even, which it is. But, you know, when you're playing online chess instead of working, instead of of spending time with your family, instead of getting your chores done, Uh, It's a problem.
0: Yeah. and Maybe you could actually just quickly lay out the criteria for addiction because if someone's addicted to online chess, they may have no idea because they think it's so benign. But if somebody is doing a little bit of um, self-inquiry, I mean, what would you say the criteria then for addiction is?
1: It's important first to acknowledge that addiction is a spectrum disorder. So we diagnose it as mild, moderate or severe. So not everybody is equally addicted. Broadly speaking, the definition of addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. We use criteria in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders to make the diagnosis of addiction. There's no brain scan or blood test. It's based on phenomenology. And those 11 criteria can broadly be summarized as the four C's control, compulsions, cravings, and consequences. Control means out of control use. I planned to watch YouTube for half an hour and three hours later I was still on it. Compulsion means a lot of my mental real estate taken up with thinking about using, getting the drug and hiding use and also a level of automaticity. So for example, I planned not to watch YouTube after I went to work, but then found myself mysteriously watching YouTube yeah. in a kind of dissociative way. A uh, Craving is physical and mental urges for the drug that can become overwhelming such that we have really kind of a panic attack and a feeling that if I don't have my drug now, I'm going to die. Um, And then consequences is really the heart of addiction, especially continued use despite consequences. And those consequences can take many forms. They can be obvious consequences, like legal consequences, serious health consequences, but they can also be more subtle consequences, like the gradual erosion of a meaningful relationship in our lives. Um, It's very hard to see ourselves getting addicted as it happens, which is why we have to rely on other people. It's a bit of a leap of faith. It's very uh, easy to miss it. Uh, A soft sign of addiction, if we're looking for it in ourselves, is lying. So when we begin Mm. to lie about what we're consuming and how we're spending our time leading a double life, uh, we might uh, think about whether or not that's a sign that we've become addicted.
0: Is this something you think we should all take a self-inventory of these days?
1: I do. I think we're living in such an addictogenic world. I think that we don't realize the ways in which our lives are now constructed around our next reward. Uh, we bookend our days uh, with uh, you know that anticipation of how we're going to uh, pleasure ourselves uh, at certain intervals. And I think it's um, not a great way to live. And uh, I think we can find a, a better way to live by really reflecting on our our consumption and the ways in which almost everything has become drugified, and to seek out um, a kind of a vision that um, is focused on moderation, or in some cases abstinence when possible. Um, and even the, its opposite, you know, intentionally seeking out kind of a new form of asceticism to reset reward pathways.
0: It's as if we're all scared to live not in a state of addiction, to live in a place of moderation, which I think has become associated with kind of boring or flatness or or something of that. But we're, we're scared almost scared to just come back to that baseline.
1: Yeah, I think it's the same way we're terrified of being bored, right? Mm -hmm. Of of sitting quietly in a room and doing nothing or walking, you know, quietly without listening to something. Um, You know, we're all kind of chronically overstimulated. And of course, the moment that we unplug ourselves is a moment of falling into into the abyss. It's pretty terrifying. We're left with our own thoughts and obsessive ruminations and existential questions. And we don't spend very much time as a society in that space. We don't provide a lot of support to ourselves or each other for exploring that space. There's not a lot of, uh, you know, momentum and enthusiasm for doing that. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty scary and pretty isolating, but very, very worthwhile.
0: I've been speaking with Anna Lemke, Director of Addiction Medicine at Stanford University and also the author of the book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Anna, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it.
1: Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure.
0: All right, that's it for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody. Check us out on Facebook and join the conversation. You can find a link at kcrw.com slash life examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks as always for listening. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you soon.